1: Support for MPB comes from University of Mississippi School of Education, offering online master's degrees in elementary education, higher education and early childhood education. Your master's degree can be earned online in as little as 1 to 2 years. More information at education.olemiss.edu.
2: Good morning. It's 8:30. I'm Karen Brown and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, when you buy gas at the pump, is your card information safe? We'll take a look. Then, a story card conversation from Mississippi on hard beginnings and second chances. And, dry weather the past few days has led to dangerous conditions across Mississippi. As a result, most of the state is under a burn ban.
3: This time of year, we're going switching seasons, and uh, our fuels are starting to cure. Plus, we're changing the weather patterns. Uh, relative humidities are dropping. The wind is picking up. Well, just a little bit- Smallest spark can start a fire or cause your fire to spread.
2: That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. High-tech thieves in Mississippi are giving pay-at-the-pump new meaning. Using devices that steal debit and credit card information from unsuspecting Mississippians at gas pumps, the criminals are making an everyday task like fueling up a matter of concern. Meredith Aldridge is with the Consumer Protection Division of the State Attorney General's Office. She tells MPB's Desiree Fraser there has been a recent uptick in reports of gas pump skimming in central Mississippi.
0: We have heard quite a bit about skimming lately, Um, not just that it's happened in the metro area, but that consumers should be on the
4: lookout and be aware that this is a real phenomenon that has obviously made its way to Mississippi. Help us understand how it works. I understand that you can do it at a gas pump, you can do it at an ATM. That's right. It's basically a little device
0: that's attached to the card reader. It's not something that consumers would typically notice. Um, You're not going to notice that the machine has been tampered with most of the time, which is why it's so important important for consumers to be checking their accounts and checking their records regularly because that's oftentimes the only way that you'll
4: know you've been a victim of skimming. So you can't see anything? There's nothing that you could eyeball and say, this system looks like it's fine? Typically, you're not
0: going to notice the signs. If a card reader does look slightly off, maybe it's off-center, looks like it's been damaged or tampered with, you might want to try a different pump, try a different ATM,
4: but typically a consumer is not going to notice. The cases that we've been hearing about lately have been at the gas pump. What can people do to protect themselves at the gas pump?
0: Well, one of the things, first and foremost, is it's always easier if you go inside and pay with cash. We know that's not as convenient for consumers, but that is a safer way to pay and a safer way um, to protect yourself against skimming and other kinds of identity theft. Um, Another thing, if you do want to pay at the pump, is to be sure that you run as a credit, run your card as a credit card, as opposed to a debit card. That way you're not entering your PIN number as well. Um, When you are a victim of skimming and you've used your debit card, that money is often out of your account immediately. And so it's easier to um, deal with transactions from a credit card perspective than a debit card perspective.
4: Can you get that money back from the bank? Right. Typically,
0: consumers are not going to be liable. If someone has stolen your credit card number you, and you report that, you will not be liable for the charges. If you've used a credit card, you won't be liable regardless. But if you use a debit card, you do have to report the unauthorized use within 60 days of receiving your statement. So there is a time window with
4: debit cards, which is why we typically recommend that you run transactions as credit. We so much rely on technology and the convenience, as you mentioned. How does this read the numbers? It's looking for the numbers on the card? That's right. It's actually recording the numbers that that your credit card has on it as you swipe it. Um, There
0: are a lot of different technologies available. It's not just one kind of skimming. uh, But the basic idea that consumers need to understand is that it will record your credit card number that could then be used to make online purchases or to create a new card of its own, an actual
4: credit card with those numbers. Where do you go to buy these skimmers? How do they get them and why are they on the market? Right. Well, that's a great question, Desiree.
0: Obviously, um, these skimmers are materials that are used really just to record uh, criminal activity when it's on uh, gas pumps and on ATMs. Um, criminals get these, you know, on online. They get these, um, you know, probably in stores from people that they might know. Um, but that's something that we would certainly want to look into as to whether these
4: items should be sold at all. Can you tell us, are there rings that do this? Is it organized efforts? Do you find that it's just one person? How does this usually play out? We really see everything. Sometimes it is an individual, but typically
0: it is going to be more of an organized effort where a group of individuals have gotten
4: together and are really engaged in this kind of fraudulent behavior across an area. How do they gain access into the inside of a pump? Aren't they locked Well, now, some uh, gas station owners have installed locks on their
0: pumps, but this is a device that can be attached to the outside um, without a consumer or even the gas station being aware that it's been attached. Um, This is why some gas station owners have um, gone ahead and put cameras on their pumps so that they would then be able to go back and see maybe who had attached that, who comes back to get that skimming device later on. Um, That's one measure that gas station owners
4: have taken to try to protect their consumers that are visiting them. Do they need the actual device that recorded the numbers to be able to use it, or can they sit somewhere off and collect that information from the skimmer? Right. It actually depends
0: on the specific type of skimmer. There are um, times where the, the person who is engaged in this criminal activity, they have to come back and retrieve the device because the numbers are recorded on the device itself. There are other times, though, when there's technology available, Bluetooth technology, other technology that will allow this information to be captured
4: remotely. I have heard of cases where people said that they didn't take their credit card or their debit card out of their wallet, but somehow their information uh, was stolen. So, and And you see sales of these metal-type cases that are supposed to prevent people from being able to remotely do it, I guess. What can you tell us about that? Well, I think
0: that, um, you know, there are a lot of opportunities for um, your credit card information to get captured. Um, We see that skimmers, you know, you're not suspecting as you go to the pump that someone will be getting your credit card number other than the credit card company to run the transaction. So I think that without knowing more, I wouldn't know about that specific situation. However, the main thing for consumers to understand and what we really want your listeners to hear is that, you may not know when you're a victim. You may not know when your card number has been taken. It could be at a place of business, it could be at the pump, it could be at the ATM. You you never know where your information, how it's been captured. But if you are monitoring your accounts closely and report unauthorized charges immediately, that is going to be your best protection about being from being a victim of identity theft. We can't emphasize enough that we want consumers to be checking their accounts regularly.
2: MPB's Desiree Fraser with Meredith Aldridge of the Consumer Protection Division of the State Attorney General's Office. At least four police departments in the metro area are investigating instances of credit card and debit fraud via skimming. Chuck Harrison is an investigator with the Madison Police Department. He tells Desiree Frazier the recent instances of skimming at the pump are the first he's seen in the city.
5: I mean, it's always been a nationwide problem, so to speak. Uh, this is actually the first first time that i have ever seen any or found any in the city of madison and i've been working there for 20 years so it's not something we see very often Uh, it was kind of a surprise but at the same time not really considering the uh, group that clinton police department recently had run across they found in their city apparently trying to download some information from one of the skimmers they had placed in a pump over there so we kind of and, you know, Byram had found one recently and also Pearl Pity, so we knew there was a good possibility that we might find one as well. That's kind of when we started really checking the pumps and found the two that we did.
4: As you mentioned, it's a serious problem. Why are they going after gas pumps?
5: Well, the way they were doing these, they were putting them inside the pump so they're not visible on the outside And the general public. You know, you pull up, everybody pretty much likes to pay their gas at the pump. It's convenient. And it was just an easy way for them to capture information without anybody really knowing about it. And it's it's a serious problem because it is so hard to to, to discover and uncover, and it can go on for quite some time before anybody does realize that there may be a skimmer and a clump And by that point, you know, it's hard to say how many credit card numbers could have been stolen and been used. So. Do,
4: do you know if they can get more information besides the number, like your name and address or anything?
5: No, it should only, all it does is capture the credit card number and the information that's encoded on those magnetic strips so that they can then take that information and they code it onto another counterfeit card, as we call it, which could be a card that's, uh, for, for example, got their name on it that they can present an ID with so they don't look as suspicious or they can put them on just a blank card. We've seen that before where they just have a plain blank white plastic card with, you know, nothing but the magnetic strip, and that's all they need.
4: Would this be something they would use in a local store, or would they buy online?
5: You could do either. I mean, they, we've seen them with some of the, the stolen credit card numbers, and in these recent cases, they've captured the information, they code them onto these cards, and then they go to a lot of local retail locations like Walmarts and Sam's Clubs and Best Buys and uh, clothing stores. They can go anywhere they want, pretty much, and they can do online stuff, too. So,
4: And so they're investing in buying cards and the machine that they can imprint the numbers on and all of that?
5: Well, yeah, somewhere somebody is. The ones that we've discovered recently have only been in possession of the counterfeit cards themselves. Uh, the guys that Coin Petey caught, they actually had a laptop that they were using to download the information from the scammers, But so far, we have not found any equipment that would, for example, emboss the name on the front of a card, but it doesn't take much. You don't necessarily have to have that. All you have to do is simply have the card reader writer that plugs into a laptop computer with the correct software that you can download from the internet or buy online and just do their thing. They just take their card they erase the information that's on the magnetic strip and replace it with the victim's stolen credit card information and then they go out and use it
4: what kind of charges do they face for doing this
5: well i mean credit card fraud obviously uh there are some federal statutes that if we if the number reaches high enough there is a federal statute both state and federal for being in possession of the counterfeit card the uh Federal statute carries mandatory minimum mandatory prison time, I believe, five years minimum for each individual counterfeit card they have. So we kind of have both of those, credit card fraud, in the possession of the counterfeit cards to work with.
4: Are those machines illegal?
5: The you No, know, the little reader writer things that they swipe the card in is similar to what you see in your local retail places where they just swipe your card. When you pay it, you know, cash register, they run it through and it captures and transmits it. Those devices are available, you know, in local office depot, for example, stores, and you can order them online from various websites. So there's nothing illegal about the actual possession of the device itself. When it becomes illegal is what you're using it for.
2: MPB's Desiree Frazier with Madison Police Investigator Chuck Harrison on credit card skimming at gas pumps. Up next, a story core conversation from Mississippi on hard beginnings and second chances. This is Mississippi Edition on NPB Think Radio.
0: This election year has been unpredictable, and it can be hard to keep track of what's true or not. NPR's election team wades through it all so you don't have to. Be informed. Listen to the station every day.
2: Daily at 4 on NPB Think Radio.
1: Believe it or not, there is a place where a musical giant like Paul McCartney, a cutting-edge alternative band like Parquet Courts, and a new singer-songwriter like Margot Price come together on the radio. It's the World Cafe. Hi, I'm David Dye, and invite you to join us on the World Cafe, where we find common musical ground. Inclusive, intelligent, and up-to-date, it's the World Cafe. Tonight at 10 on MPB Music Radio. H.T. Drake grew up in Carroll County, Mississippi. He walked eight miles to school, which he left in the ninth grade. But that's not where his education ended. Drake served his country in World War II before coming home and heading back to school to Tougaloo College. He shares his story with his
6: daughter, Denise, at Mississippi's stop on the StoryCorps mobile tour. We walked to school through the woods, the path that we somehow or another, we just automatically made that you got through the woods to make it closer and it was eight miles. And sometime my dad would let me ride the horse. The horse's name was Dan. He let me ride that horse to school. And I'd ride that horse to school, and I had to show that horse off and go to the girls, you know, make a show with with that horse. But they, if daddy let me ride that horse to school. Okay, so that was elementary.
2: Elementary and high school. In
6: high school. And there I... Didn't say finish in ninth grade, but I did go to the ninth grade because World War II was, was, had begun at that time. And I left the uh, school, went to Greenwood, Mississippi, where the United States had provided training for welders, electric welders, to go to Norfolk, Virginia, to work at the shipyard. I went to Norfolk, Virginia for two years as an electric welder owned for ships, ships that had been damaged by the war. Then I was drafted into the Navy. Then after finishing training, I was transferred to Realtown, Virginia, an ammunition dump. And my job there was to dig ditches and haul logs. And one day while in a ditch, digging a ditch, an officer from the Navy came and called my name, Seaman Henry Drake. And I got out of the ditch and came. And the first, he asked me, had you ever hound money? I said, no. I was scared to death because I was afraid they were going to accuse me of stealing money. But it was not for that reason. They were looking for somebody to work in the store, PX. And they had hired me in the PX because I had no background. But somehow, they trusted me. So I, That's where I spent my career for two years at the PX. And during that time, of course, we had the, the integration of the whites and blacks. The whites were located in the bag on one side of the hill. Blacks were located on the other side of the hill. And one day while we were just around the barret, I was talking to a white chief officer. And he asked me, he said, Sailor, what did you do before you came into the Navy? I said, well, I was an electric welder. Electric welder. And you got you digging ditches? I said, Yeah. He said, Let me tell you, Sailor said, if they t- if you tell you to dig a ditch, dig a good ditch. And that kind of set the tone for the rest of my life. It encouraged me for whatever job that I got, do the very best, whatever it was, whether you liked it or not. Coming out of the Navy, of course, I got married to my wife, Maggie Burkehead Drake. And my wife said, well, you need to just think about going to college. I said, going to college? I don't have the background to go to college. I don't have no high school background. I so said, just go ahead and get your GED. So she insisted that I go to Tougaloo College. And I said, Tougaloo College? That's the college for smart folk. I don't have no background. I'm not smart enough to go to Tougaloo College. And in the meantime, we were expecting our first child, who to be born September, the last of September. Tougaloo College started all of the last week in August. I told her, I can't go to Tougaloo because i got to stay, stay here and help you have this baby. She took me to the doctor, her doctor, and he was really rough. He looked at me. He said, H.T., who going to have this baby? <laughs> I didn't answer because I couldn't answer. He said, me and your wife going to have this baby. He said, get your eight, I won't use the word, out of here and get on down to Tougaloo College. So I packed my bag, my trunk, and whatever, and got on the Boston train, got out of two-group college, scared to death, looking, out, looking to see all them smart folks that I know I didn't have a background with. And the first time the freshman class met, they elected me as president of the class. That was a shock, mm-hmm but somehow or another they saw fit.
1: To hear more of our conversations from the StoryCorps Mobile Tour, go to mpbonline.org. The StoryCorps Mobile Tour visited Mississippi through a partnership with the Mississippi Humanities Council, the MPB Foundation, and Mississippi Public Broadcasting.
2: This election year has been unpredictable. It can be hard to keep track of what's true and what's not. But NPR's election team wades through it all so you don't have to. Be informed. Listen to this station every day.
1: I'm Kevin Farrell, the host of Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. Each week, credit counselor Chris Burford and assistant professor of finance Nancy Lotter Janderson are ready to answer your questions about credit, investing, or saving for retirement. Or call in to share your success stories of navigating the personal finance challenges that we all face. Money Talks, Tuesday mornings at 9 on MPB Think Radio.
2: This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The number of Mississippi counties under burn bans continues to grow as dry weather persists across the state. Forty-nine counties across the state are now restricting fires due to dry conditions. The ban does not apply to gas or charcoal grills. Bill Kitchens is with the Mississippi Forestry Commission. He tells MPB's Paul Boger the ban will likely remain in place at least until the next significant rainfall.
3: Right. Right now, we have burn bans across the state. Uh, most of them being in the uh, north uh, eastern part of the state, but there are a few here in uh, central Mississippi and Rankin, Winston, and Lauderdale counties have uh, some burn bans going on right now.
1: So, what is a burn ban?
3: Well, a yeah, burn ban is basically uh, no outside burning, and that includes, you know, doing any kind of forestry or agricultural burns, debris burning. Uh, burning garbage, no burn barrels, any type of outdoor burning. That does not include charcoal grills or grilling or anything like that. But you can any any type of outdoor burning, such so as campfires or forestry, agriculture burns, debris burns. is what we're talking about when we're saying burn bans.
1: So why place this burn ban now? You know, usually the, I think you would think of this as something that would happen during the summer.
3: Well, in the summertime, we're really out of our fire season because in summertime here, most of our grasses and fuels have a lot of moisture in them. This time of year, we're going switching seasons, and uh, our fuels are starting to cure. Plus, we're changing weather patterns. The relative humidities are dropping. The wind is picking up. And with those humidities dropping, wind picking up. And uh, already, you know, our fuels are starting to dry or or dry that these, um, well, just a little... Smallest spark can start a fire or cause your fire to spread, and you know even though you're doing the burning, it can spread to your neighbor's property or you know cause damage to your neighbor's property. And and most time we're talking about forest or wildland, but you know it doesn't uh, stop there. It can actually get you know burn someone's house down, shed down, and you're responsible for the damage it does, whether it be forestry land that is. had damage to it, such as the trees and things, or someone's house, so you that you could be held responsible for that.
1: What are the penalties if, if you're caught burning lawn clippings or something like that?
3: Okay, during a burn ban, you can be fined anywhere between $100 and $500 for violating the burn ban, and this is up to the uh, county sheriffs to enforce the burn bans in the county.
1: So, how long are these burn bans in effect for? Until we get a good rain or something?
3: Uh, it depends. And the way the burn ban process works is the county board of supervisors request a burn ban, and then it goes to our service foresters who forward it to our district office who forward the state forester for his signature. And each county supervisor, board of supervisors, determine there's the length of the burn ban. Normally, it's for about 30 days, and then they can extend it past that. Uh, you know, request it to be extended, so I would probably say these burn bans are probably going to last until we get a significant rain, but there again, it's up to each individual county board of supervisors as to how long they want to put these burn bans on. Well, we just ask everybody to be careful out there, uh, even if your county does not have a burn ban. Everything is starting to get dry, and just the least little spark can, can cause a fire to spread and and spread to your neighbor's property or... Uh, And like I say, if if you're responsible for the damage those fires cause. And we just ask that everybody be careful. And we're going into this time of year when the things are going to be dry, low humidities. So just, just please, everybody,
5: be careful right now.
2: MPB's Paul Boger with Bill Kitchens of the State Forestry Commission on a burn ban in place across 49 counties. There is no rain in the forecast throughout this week, according to the National Weather Service. Coming up after Mississippi edition, it's Money Talks in Legal Terms and Southern Remedy. And remember, if you want to catch the show outside this broadcast, just search for Mississippi edition in your favorite podcasting app and listen whenever you'd like. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 830 for the next Mississippi edition. It's only on MPB Think Radio.
1: Support for MPB comes from University of Mississippi School of Education, offering online master's degrees in elementary education, higher education, and early childhood education. Your master's degree can be earned online in as little as one to two years. More information at education.olemiss.edu. This is Marketplace Tech for Tuesday.